Blog Talk Radio. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and the Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found, God's Peace. It's all about helping you defeat anxiety and know true lasting contentment. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's peace, P-E-A-C-E, at G-T-Y dot org. Offer good in North America and Europe through December 2017. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur. There is a bluntness in the gospel. The utter absence of ambiguity. 
characterizes the truth. False religion is necessarily and typically ambiguous. The gospel is not. It is blunt, straightforward. The gospel tells the truth with candor, plainly spoken truth that is so straightforward and so unmistakable as to be blatantly offensive. In fact, the introductory line of the Christian gospel goes like this. Every human being is a sinner. Every human being sins because every human being possesses a corrupt nature, a wicked disposition. Beyond just that corruption and wicked disposition, all human beings are rebels against God. They have rebelled against God by the willful and constant violation of His holy law, which is a reflection of His holy nature. Consequently, all sinners are under divine judgment for their rebellion and their violation and their innate corruption. The sentence that comes from God on all mankind is condemnation to eternal punishment in hell. That is the blunt and shocking and stunning truth of the gospel. That's where it starts. There are people who are eager to remove that part of the gospel and therefore deconstruct the gospel and usually end up with a gospel that is no gospel. And we learned earlier in Galatians, if anybody preaches another gospel, let him be damned. We're all sinners. We're all under divine judgment. We can do nothing to change that on our own. Now that causes me to pose some questions to get us into this text. Question number one, how do we know that we are all sinners? How do we know? What's the proof that we're all sinners? Pretty popular to think of people as being basically good. What is the evidence that we are all sinners? Very simple, everyone dies. Everyone dies. The Old Testament says the soul that sins, it shall die. New Testament says the wages of sin is death. If you say you're not a sinner, then you have to explain your death. If you say you're not corrupt, you have to explain your demise. And further, if you say you have not sinned, you lie, and you make God, who says you are a sinner, a liar, and that only compounds your guilt. The message of the gospel initially is terrifyingly clear and absolutely true. But hastily, after that first affirmation, there is a second affirmation in the gospel, and it is this. God loves the world and offers them forgiveness and salvation. And that answers the second question, is there anything that can be done about my condition? The answer is yes. God loves the world. God provides deliverance from sin, from judgment, from death, from hell to those 
who have faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior of the world. There is eternal life in Him, forgiveness, escape from hell, and entrance into the glories of God's own heaven. How do we know that that good news is true? The answer, the Bible gives us the proof of it. The Bible, obviously, a book written by God, authored by God, lays out the message of God's love and forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The proof of that second affirmation of the Christian gospel is found throughout the pages of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. God has the desire to save because He loves sinners, and God has sent a Savior who provided a sacrifice for sin that granted salvation to those who believe. The Bible is the proof of that, and the Bible stands on its own internal merit as inerrant and absolutely true. Now that leads to a next question, very important. How can I be sure that Christ is able to save? Anyone. How can I be sure that Christ is the Savior? If I'm going to turn to Him, put my faith in Him, how can I be sure that Christ is able to save me? Proof? He died and rose from the dead. He died a death that essentially was the wrath of God on Him, not for any sins that He had done, for He had done none. But the Father imputed all the sins of all the people who had ever believed through all of human history to Christ and punished Christ for all their sins. He died in the place of believers. His was the death for the sins of all who believe. How do we know that His death satisfied God? Because God raised Him from the dead. God was satisfied. His wrath was propitiated. And God raised Christ from the dead as a divine affirmation of the satisfaction of His own sacrifice. Those are clear truths. Those are unambiguous truths. Those are the objective truths of the gospel. All men are sinners headed to eternal punishment. God loves and will forgive sinners who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is able to save he has offered the sacrifice that satisfied God, and therefore God declared that a satisfactory sacrifice by raising Him from the dead. You're a Christian because you believe that. All those, again, unambiguous truths are the objective historical realities about the gospel. All true Christians understand them and embrace them and believe them. That's why they're Christians. But there's a fourth question, and this is the one to which I want to draw your attention today. It is this question, how can I be certain that I have truly believed and received that salvation? This is not the question, does Christ have the power to save? We believe that. We believe we're sinners. We believe God loves us and has provided a way of salvation. We believe Christ has the power to save as demonstrated by His sacrifice and His resurrection. 
The question is a more personal question, not an objective question, but a subjective question, not about something that happened historically, but about our own hearts. How can I be certain that I have believed in Christ and been saved? This is subjective. And this addresses the difference between confidence, faith, and assurance that the Lord Jesus Christ has the power to save and confidence, assurance, and faith that I have actually been saved by that power. Now, let's be honest. Even though we believe those objective facts of the gospel, as Christians, there are times when we struggle to be assured of our salvation. One of the things you deal with as a pastor a lot is the problem with people who lack assurance of salvation. They don't doubt that they're sinful. They don't doubt that God loves and provides a sacrifice in Christ. They don't doubt that Christ has the power to save. They don't doubt the resurrection, but they doubt that they are saved. What is it that steals a believer's assurance? Well, there are a number of things that will weaken your assurance. One, and we'll give you a few, lack of uh, impact, lack of results in service. Some people look at their life and, and they say, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. Supposedly I have been transformed and, and uh, I have power from on high. But I look at my life and I, I don't see any impact. I, I try to do some things to serve the Lord. I, I have to say I don't, I don't see much as a result of that. And Someone in that kind of situation gets discouraged and wonders whether they actually possess the power, whether they've actually been given life. And then another reality that steals your assurance is disobedience. You fail to obey the Word of God. You get caught up in transgressions, iniquities, and sins. And because of your disobedience, which is a willful disobedience, you naturally will question, am I genuinely a believer? And I'm not talking about the occasional paroptima when you stumble, but I'm talking about the fact that you're realizing that there's something in you that continues to will to disobey. You see that and you, you wonder, have I really been saved? Another one is inconsistency. You go to the spiritual highs occasionally. You're here today and your heart is lifted up in worship. You'll find yourself a day later in a situation that you shouldn't be in and you looked at that situation and you see inconsistency in your life, inconsistency in your attractions and your desires, and you wonder whether you're really saved. And then there's the presence of um, sort of habitual indwelling sin. Here you are, you've been a believer for a while, and you're still struggling with the same exact sins that have been beleaguering you for years and years, and you wonder, if I'm really a believer, why can I not get victory over these besetting sins? And then you have to face the reality of temptation to doubt. Satan tempts us to doubt, and doubt is a temptation. You doubt the truth of Scripture. You doubt the glory of God. You doubt the truth concerning Christ. You doubt a lot of things. That's a temptation. So, your, your assurance can, can be very weakened by lack of results, lack of impact by your life, disobedience, inconsistency, 
the presence of uh, habitual indwelling sin, temptation. Another one is sensitive conscience. Uh, there are some people who are more sensitive than others. They, they tend to be wired to be more introspective and more fearful, and they tend to be more doubtful in their own minds. And as they look at their lives and they begin to become introspective, they see things they don't like there. Their conscience uh, uh, causes them pain and suffering over their condition, and that begins to steal their assurance. There are other things. Neglect of worship. You come now and then, and then you wonder why you're not certain of your salvation. You worship only on occasions with the people of God. Negligence of fellowship, negligence of prayer, negligence of boldness in the proclamation of the gospel. All these things are thieves that steal your assurance. We're not saying they steal your salvation. Your salvation is fixed as a true believer. Your assurance may waver. But there's one other thing I want to talk about. There's another reality that has a way of stealing our assurance, and we'll just call it trouble. Trouble. Trouble with uh, corollary disappointment. Things aren't going the way you think they ought to go. You find out about some illness or the death of a friend or some tragedy with regard to a child, or you wonder why your relationship, maybe even your marriage and your family, is falling apart in horrific ways that are heartbreaking to you. Um, some theologians have called this a frowning providence. The, the providence of God seems always to be frowning on you, and things never go the way you think they should go. And you begin to wonder whether you are a child of God, and if you are a child of God, why doesn't God pay more attention to you? And why does it seem that you're suffering in an undue way? These are the kinds of things that, that weaken and steal your assurance. And at some point, all Christians will have gone through a time where they will say, am I really saved? Am I really saved? Now, our passage is going to give you an answer that is marvelous to this question, how can I be sure that Christ has truly saved me? The answer here is very powerful. Let's begin at verse 1 of chapter 4. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he doesn't differ at all from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons... God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now, this is about sonship. This is about sonship. This is about the great doctrine of adoption. Adoption. Verse 5, we have received the adoption as sons. There are, as we saw last time and looking at the earlier verses, 
There are many aspects to the doctrine of salvation, regeneration, conversion, justification. This is the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption, one of the magnificent realities in the glorious complex of our salvation. We have been adopted into the family of God and our sons of God. Now, how does this work? Go back to or forward to Ephesians 1, and I just remind you of how Paul begins this epistle in verse 3, blessing God. Now, listen to what he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, in which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. He chose us, He predestined us to adoption as sons. This is adoption. Adoption is a choice. Adoption takes place when someone makes a child out of someone born into another family. Adoption is when you take a child born to another family and bring that child into your family. That is exactly what God does with us. John 8, our Lord said, you're of your father the devil, you're of your father the devil, he is your father, you are children of disobedience, you are children of wrath, you are children of Satan. That's your family. But God has chosen you, predestined you to adoption as sons according to the kind intention of His own will. This is part of realizing the richness of salvation. We were a part of Satan's family but God has adopted us. This only happens in Christ. In Christ. We are adopted, Ephesians 1 says, in His Son. We are blessed, verse 3, with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. Verse 4, He chose us in Him. Verse 5, predestined to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Verse 6, in the Beloved. Verse 7, in Him. And it goes on. Verse 9, in Him. Verse 10, in Him. Verse 12, in Christ. Verse 13, in Him, in Him. God only has one Son, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are placed into Christ, and therefore we become heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ as we read in Romans 8. This is the great doctrine of adoption, and we looked at it in some detail last time. The Father loves the Son, John 3.35, and He loves those who are in the Son because they are one with the Son. This is the marvelous reality of salvation. Behold what manner of love the Father has that He has made us, 1 John 3.1, children of God. He loves us enough not only to do the negative, save us from our sins, but do the positive, adopt us into His own family, into His 
one eternal Son to share His full inheritance. God's astounding love is the cause, the motive, the drive behind our adoption. He loves the Son. He places us in the Son. And He loves us the way He loves the Son. We see that laid out so magnificently in the 17th chapter of John where our Lord prays and binds those for whom He prays, all believers, together with Himself and with the Father in this bond of love. We are loved by the Father because Christ is loved. We are blessed by the Father because Christ is blessed. We inherit all that Christ inherits because we are in Christ. This is how we are to understand our adoption. We have been placed into His true Son and therefore are heirs of everything God possesses. This is adoption. God graciously places justified, regenerated, sanctified believers into His own family by placing them into union with His beloved Son so that in Him they become sons of God. Now that takes us back to this question again. How can I be certain that I have had that occur in my life? How can I be sure that I have truly believed in Christ so as to be saved? Now, how do I know that I am really in Christ and have been adopted? How do I know that? The confirmation of that comes in verse 6. This is what I want you to see. The confirmation comes in verse 6. We saw the preparation for sonship. We saw the realization for sonship, and here's the confirmation. This is a familiar verse, but one not understood. You're going to understand it this morning. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because you are sons, God does this. That's exactly what it's saying. The fact is, you are sons. And because you are, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. That is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of His Son is the same as the Spirit of Christ, as He's called elsewhere, the Spirit of God. Same thing, the Holy Spirit. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts because we are sons. Back again to Ephesians 1 and the end of that long section down to verse 13. In Him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, you listened, you heard, you believed also, you were sealed in Him. That is, Christ was your Savior permanently. You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. When you were justified, when you were converted, when you were saved, you were sealed with the Spirit of promise. The Spirit of promise took up residence in your heart. That is what that verse is saying. The Spirit was given to you as a pledge of our inheritance, which is coming later at the redemption of our bodies when we enter into the presence of the Lord. So think of it this way. You have a future inheritance. You have an inheritance that the Lord 
has prepared for you because you are a true believer. That inheritance is laid up for you in heaven. Listen to this from 1 Peter 1. We have an inheritance, verse 4, which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That's great. We have that. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you and I'll come and take you to where I am and you'll be with me always. We have a place. We have a full inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and reserved for only us in heaven. Then it says, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So now we have this future inheritance and we have a present protection and that protection is the power of God. That is none other than the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in us is the protecting power of God that secures us until we receive our inheritance. We are protected by the power of God, and that power is the Holy Spirit. Peter says also, you have become partakers of the divine nature. That is to say, the very nature of God is part of you. You are partaking in the nature of God. Again, that is a reference to the indwelling Holy Spirit who provides for us this divine life and transformation. So if you are a true son of God, you possess the Holy Spirit. In fact, it's so personal that verse 6 says, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. That is clear in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 6, Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which you have of God, you're not your own, but bought with a price. Your body is the temple of the Spirit of God. Romans 8, 9, I read it earlier. If any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. But you are his, and so you have the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, the great New Covenant passage in Ezekiel, says that when we come to salvation, God puts a new spirit in us, His own spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we are all made to drink of one spirit. Jesus said in John chapter 7 that when you come to faith, and when you come to Him and come to salvation, something dramatic will occur in your life and it relates to the Holy Spirit. Listen to verses 38 and 39. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from His innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this He spoke of the Spirit. But this He spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were to receive. The Spirit is a flood of living waters in us. Now, this is part of our understanding of the, the theology of the Holy Spirit, that He takes up residence in every believer's life. So this is the evidence that you are saved. You possess the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just make a brief uh, aside here and say this. Some of you are saying to yourselves, you keep talking about being adopted, adopted, adopted. But doesn't the Bible say we are born into the family of God? Doesn't the Bible say that we're born again? Yes, it does. John 3, you must be born of the water and the Spirit. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. First uh, Peter uh, 1.23 says that we're begotten again. We're born again by the seed which is the Word of God, the gospel seed which is the Word of God. Yes, we are regenerated. We have been given new life. We are new creations. So it is true. We are born into the family of God. So mark it. 
We are both born and adopted. Now, that's not possible. That's not possible in the normal human world. But we're talking about two distinctly different analogies or metaphors. Look, the Bible does this a lot. You can talk about the church as a kingdom. You can talk about the church as a vineyard. You can talk about the church as a flock. You can talk about the church as a, as a body. You can talk about the church as a family. The Bible uses lots of different analogies and metaphors to give us the full understanding of our identity in Christ. So we are both born into the family of God by regeneration and adopted into the family of God. Both are essential pictures to have us understand the riches of salvation. Let me explain what I mean. Your birth into the family of God determines your nature. It relates to your nature. You, um, you have died to the old man. You have died to the old life. You are in Christ a new creation. This relates to our nature. Our spiritual birth, regeneration, being born again relates to our nature. It is the work of transforming our nature, regenerating us, giving us spiritual life. That is viewed as birth. On the other hand, adoption does not relate to the receiving of eternal life, but re relates to the inheritance that is ours. It relates to what God will grant us out of the love that He has for us. So when we talk about new birth, we're talking with reference to our nature. We've been recreated. When we're talking about adoption, we're talking about inheritance. That's what we're going to receive. The Lord has chosen to give us the inheritance. The reason that might be important to know is that there are plenty of sons who have been disinherited. Father will never do that. We are both born into the family and will receive the full inheritance of an adopted son. Adoption connects with election. Adoption connects with predestination in Ephesians chapter 1. Chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, predestined to adoption as sons. Out of all the world, God looked into the kingdom of Satan, saw the children of the devil, and chose you. So in one metaphor, you are born into the family of God, which then is the metaphor that expresses the fact that you possess a new nature, the nature of the, that is divine, received from God. You already have eternal life in you now. Adoption speaks of your inheritance. So how do we know, how do we know that we have the Holy Spirit, right? How do we know that we have the Holy Spirit? That's the next question. It's fine to say that, but how do I know that I have the Spirit of His Son in me? I, I get it. Romans 8.11, His Spirit dwells in you. Romans 8.14, all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. 1 John 3.24, we know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Or Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So we are told the Holy Spirit is given to us. He is in us, in our hearts, inside of us. How do we know that? How do we know that? Jesus said in John 14 to the disciples, the Spirit has been with you. He will be in you. How do I know the Spirit is in me? 
How do I know that Ephesians 3.16 is my experience according to the riches of His glory? You are strengthened in the inner man by the power of the Holy Spirit. How do I know that? Well, there are a number of ministries the Holy Spirit conducts. He teaches us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says this about the Holy Spirit's ministry. We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. The Holy Spirit shows us all the blessings that God has given us. First John 2.27, the Holy Spirit is the anointing that teaches us all things, so we don't need human teachers. So we've all experienced the instructing work of the Holy Spirit. That's why you're in this church, by the way, if you're here regularly. That's why you're not sitting in a dark room with strobe lights and rock and roll music. Because you're far more interested in having your heart ignited by the instructing of the Spirit of God through the Word of God than you are in an emotional experience. That's why you're here. In fact, that's alien to you. That's not interesting to you. You don't care about that. You don't want that. You have tasted of the instructing of the Holy Spirit. You've, you've had a Luke 24 experience. Did not our heart burn with a, within us? while He spoke with us from the Word. Your hearts have burned under the glory of the Word of God, its own inherent glory. So you have had the ministry of the Holy Spirit in instructing you. Secondly, the Holy Spirit leads us. You've been led by the Holy Spirit. You don't know it when it's happening. You can't feel anything. But you certainly know it in retrospect, don't you? You look back and you see providence after providence after providence after providence of the Lord directing every single step all the way. And you look back and say, I have been led. There is no explanation for this except from the Holy Spirit. You have also experienced the comfort from the sovereign companion. John 14, Jesus says, I'm going to send the comforter. I'm going to send the helper, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside and helps you. You've gone through the trials of life, the difficulties of life, and you have found peace and comfort. It's a peace that passes understanding, and people don't know how you can be so calm and so joyful in the middle of all that's going on. You've experienced the comforting work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5 says that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you speak to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You sing, make melody in your heart to the Lord. You come to worship and your heart is lifted up and you love the music. And that is the work of the Spirit in you. But there's another thing here. A specific, very specific thing that Paul is going to say to you. Yes, we've experienced his instruction, his leading his comfort, his filling. We've even, we've even experienced his conviction. Convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. But Paul wants you to look at this, and I doubt whether you've really thought this one through. How do you know that you're saved? Because you have the Spirit of God in your heart. How do you know He's in your heart? Because He's in your heart crying, Abba, Father. That's not some generic idea. That is a very specific statement. Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit in you is crying. The verb here means a um, loud, urgent cry from someone in profound suffering. Someone in fear. Someone terrified someone in pain, someone in loss, someone who is deeply needy. That's the Word. 
And what the Word of God is telling us here is that you know you're saved when you get to the point of suffering and your instant response is to cry out, Abba, which means that you are saying, Papa. That's the Aramaic diminutive. You're saying, Daddy. This is the evidence that you are a true son of God. You rush to your father's arms. You know he loves you. You know he's your father. You know he has all the resources. Unbelievers don't do that. An unbeliever might say, Oh, God, but not Abba. An unbeliever might get mad at whatever God he thinks exists. But in the deepest and darkest experiences of believers, they cry out to God. This is all of our lives, isn't it? This is what we do. This is what we do. And here, when you do that, notice in verse 6, it is the Spirit of His Son crying, Abba, Father, in you. He has linked with your faith. And He's crying in you. The Holy Spirit literally in you sends you rushing into the presence of God. This is how we live our lives. I think back, there are some dramatic things in my life. My son Mark was told, I was told he had a brain tumor. It could be fatal. I didn't question God. I, I didn't get angry with God. I just ran to God. I just ran to Him in my heart and in my prayers, prayer and fasting for days and days. When Patricia had a car accident, broke her neck, C2, C3, my precious wife, there was no anger. I just ran to God. And that's the Spirit in me sending me to my Father. That's not what non-believers do. That's what believers do. So the reality is, in the darkest of your hours, the reality of your salvation will have its most powerful proof. Now, I want to show you something further. Look at Romans 8.15, which I read a little bit ago, and we'll wrap up our thoughts. Romans 8.15 For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leading us to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. Wait a minute. Who's, who's crying, Abba, Father, in Galatians? The Holy Spirit. Who's crying, Abba, Father, here? We are. The Holy Spirit is crying, Abba, Father, in Galatians. We're crying, Abba, Father, here which is to say that the Holy Spirit is operating through our faith. When some people want to explain the Holy Spirit crying, they want to make it something outside of us. It's something inside of us. It is distinct. It's the Holy Spirit crying, Abba, Father, Galatians. It's us crying, Abba, Father, Romans. It's a distinction, but it's indistinguishable. 
It is, according to Romans 8, 16, the Spirit Himself testifying with our spirit. There it is. It's the Spirit connected to our redeemed spirit, and together the Spirit is empowering us to cry out to God. That's where that boldness to go to the throne of grace comes from. There is not in the life of a non-believer any kind of filial attraction to God. There is not that fatherly draw. There is not that open-hearted rushing into the arms of one you know loves you. It is both our faith and the Spirit's testimony together. It is both something apart from us, the cry of the Holy Spirit, and something within us, our own heart's cry. Again, it is a distinction without being distinguishable. Say, it's hard to understand that. I don't think so, and I'll show you why. Romans 10 says this in verse 9. Just take the first part. If you confess Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. Obviously, includes believing God raised Him from the dead. If you confess Jesus as Lord, you'll be saved. And you're to do that. I call on you. Confess Jesus as Lord and be saved. If you confess Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. But listen to this. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So it's you saying Jesus is Lord in Romans 10. It's the Holy Spirit saying Jesus is Lord in 1 Corinthians 12. It is the Holy Spirit empowering our faith. It's like all other acts of faith. All other acts of faith. Reading the Word is an act of faith empowered by the Holy Spirit. Worshiping is an act of faith empowered by the Holy Spirit. Praying is an act of faith empowered by the Holy Spirit. Crying out in need, crying from the depths of our broken hearts to God in sorrow is not something we do alone. It's a partnership with the Holy Spirit. It's an inexplicable one. But it's, a, it's the same as all other connections. I don't live my Christian life. The Holy Spirit lives in, in and through me, and yet it's not apart from me. It is a distinction without, a, without being distinguishable. First Peter 1 calls this being distressed, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold. You want to know whether your faith's real? In your darkest hour, when you run to a loving Father and pour out your heart, you are crying, Abba, Father. That's the evidence that the Spirit is in you. Only truly saved believers do that. Final illustration. Turn to Mark 14 and verse 36. There in Gethsemane, verse 33 says, Jesus began to be distressed and troubled. He said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and watch. This is the darkest hour in the entire life of Christ up to this point. 
This is the deepest, darkest hour in his life. He went a little beyond, verse 35, fell to the ground, began to pray. In the deepest, darkest moment of his life, anticipating the bearing of the sins of all who would ever believe through human history, experiencing the fury and the wrath of God, the fury and wrath that all hell could never eliminate, but he would have to absorb in three hours of darkness. In anticipation of the horrors of that, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, in the hour of his deepest agony, what does he say in verse 36? He was saying over and over, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. This is the only time recorded in the New Testament that Jesus ever said Abba to His Father. And it's because it's connected to the deepest, darkest sorrows of life. And even Jesus, in that horrendous situation, ran to His Father. You are a son because the Spirit is in you. You know the Spirit is in you. Yes, because He leads you. Yes, because He teaches you. Yes, because He comforts you. Yes, because He convicts you. But specifically, you know He's in you because in your stress and disappointment and sorrow and pain, you run to the Father and you say, Papa, Daddy. You say it without fear. You say it with love. You say it out of the desperation of your need. All fear is removed, and you run into the arms of your true Father. Lord God, we are blessed beyond comprehension on so many levels and so many ways, but we seem to be unable to exhaust all the ways that You demonstrate Your love to us. Every time we turn around, some new reality of Scripture jumps out at us and sets our hearts on fire. We understand the fellowship of the burning heart because our hearts burn within us when You speak with us through Your Word. We thank You for the unambiguous and blunt gospel. We thank You because it's clear to us. We're sinful. We need a Savior. There is a Savior. He has the power to save. And we can even know that He has saved us because we cry, Papa, Daddy, Abba. Just to think that we unworthy sinners, would rush into the Holy of Holies because You are our loving Father. And the Holy Spirit has granted us by His presence in us that rich assurance and confidence. There are no words for us to express our gratitude. May we rejoice in our true salvation give you all the praise. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. 
For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website, gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme and glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and His Love. 
98% similar? This is Ken Ham, President of Answers in Genesis and the Creation Museum. You've probably heard that chimps, our supposed closest living relatives, share 98% of their DNA with us. But are we really only 2% different from chimps? Well, the 98% number is based off old data. The data used human DNA as a framework because the researchers assumed common ancestry. It was shown later that much of the data was contaminated with actual human DNA from the researchers. And later research showed our DNA to be only 85% similar. This similarity in DNA doesn't suggest a common ancestor. In the same way a computer programmer uses the basic commands to design many different programs, the creator used the same basic instructions. Get answers to common questions about science, the Bible, creation, and evolution at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be encouraged and equipped with answers at AnswersRadio.com. Let's take it back to the foundation. Jesus Christ's impact and his salvation. I'm talking about Calvary, where his blood was lost. I'm talking the reality of the rugged cross. I'm talking about death, burial, and resurrection. I'm talking about reconciliation and election. Yeah, I'm repetitive because we're slow learners. Just that truth music, I am a sojourner. Reporting to you live from the wilderness. We strive on the pilgrimage. Alive because he's building his tribes in the villages. Revive us and fill us with eyes diligent for our rival who Villages. Because he prowls around like a roaring lion But he's surely dying before the Lord is dying Defeat one was the cross, soon comes another loss Trust in Jesus, the ultimate undercover boss And hey, yo, if you don't want the gospel, yo, turn this off You wanna hear a bunch of mumbling? Turn this off You want misogyny and guns? Yo, turn it off You got to turn it off, man, you got to turn it off You want Jesus on the low? Yo, turn this off You want me bragging about my flow? Yo, turn it off You want what's on the radio? Yo, turn this off You got to turn it off, man, you got to turn it off. I know it's been a while since I've been making songs. Some people even say, shy, yo, why you take so long? Sorry if you felt abandoned or hurt, but music took a back seat because we planted a church. How have I been? Thanks for asking. I can't complain. God is good. I've been enjoying my wife, enjoying fatherhood. I'm trying to think long-term sustainable. By God's grace, fruit, when I'm going, is still attainable. I want to see new births and bound kids free. What good is making many waves if it tends to fade? I'm trying to produce works that outlive me. So God can use my pen to save when I'm in the grave writing this flying over the Atlantic I just can't help but think about the Titanic I preach Christ cause many without hope will drown this world is exactly like the boat it's going down hey yo if you don't want the gospel yo turn this off you want to hear a bunch of mumbling turn this off you want misogyny and guns yo turn it off you got to turn it off man you got to turn it off you want Jesus on the low yo turn this off you want me bragging about my flow yo turn this off you want what's on the radio yo turn this off you got to turn it off man you got to turn it off. Hey yo, it feels like the days of Noah. This world is post-Christian. The glory days are over. Cats thirsty for the fame and with sell. So they babble as they try to make a name for themselves. They're shallow with mirth. They try to flex and rebel. But what you swallow on earth will be digested in hell. It's so profound. You joke around, you get broken down by Christ who holds the crown and sees through you like an ultrasound. He's the reason I write a piece of advice. Trust Jesus to Christ no matter your season of life. Believe God and his promise. Serve with fervor. Before he plays the dishonest third shift 
worker, a thief in the night. Jesus, the light of the world, he's our delight. The reason that believers are hype, he won't leave us despite our previous life. The deviant type, by God's grace, get immediate sight. Hey yo, if you don't want the gospel, yo, turn this off. You wanna hear a bunch of mumbling? Turn this off. You want misogyny and guns? Yo, turn this off. You got to turn it off, man. You got to turn it off. You want Jesus on the low? Yo, turn this off. You want me bragging about my flow? Yo, turn it off. You want what's on the radio? Yo, turn this off. You got to turn it off, man. You got to turn it off. Yeah, I mean, shout out to all my Christian soldiers repping Jesus Christ on the front lines. Big Juice, what up? Bless Nazarite, I see you. Yo, Eshan, what up, man? Jackie Hill Perry, keep rapping them, sis. No matter what, keep rapping them. Keep rapping them. That was Shailen with a song called Turn Off from this album called Still, Still Jesus. And now. Here, get social with us. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T R U T H B T O L D R A D I O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S M I L E S. A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M Smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
both wish it, but like this, you want to find out more about them or get their albums, go to GoFishGuys.com, G-O-F-I-S-H-G-U-I-S.com, GoFishGuys.com. Here's Answers in Genesis. It's similar if you ignore the differences. This is Ken Ham, and we've produced the family-friendly Answers Bible Curriculum. You've probably heard that chimps and humans share 98% of their DNA, but where'd this number come from? Well, DNA matching is complicated. To simplify it, researchers ignored the large mismatch sections totaling 1.3 billion DNA letters. The remaining 2.4 billion letters were 98% similar. So researchers left out huge parts of both human and chip DNA in their comparison. Yet this number is supposed proof that we're related. Our DNA isn't 98% similar to chimps. Yet we share some similarities in our DNA with apes, and that's no surprise. That's because we're made of similar things like muscles, bones, and hair. Learn about our full-size Noah's Ark-themed attraction, Ark Encounter, when you go to our website at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com.
separates us from apes. This is Ken Ham, a missionary with a passion for sharing God's Word. Yesterday we learned that we don't actually share 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees. That myth has been proven false. That number could never be right because we're so obviously different from apes. There are huge anatomical differences between us and apes. For instance, our knees face forward so we can walk upright, but chimps' knees, along with their wrists, fingers and hips, are shaped very differently. They're designed for climbing trees and walking on all fours. Humans can design skyscrapers, write music, discuss philosophy. An ape, while smart for an animal, relies solely on instinct. Humans also have a conscience, something no ape has, and we're made in the image of God. Subscribe to receive daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com. And you can listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. And now from Richard, this is Carrie Underwood, Wonky Theology and Raising Lewis here at Truth Be Told Radio. This is Richard Radio with Talk Freel. This is Carrie Underwood. Would <laughs> the CMAs shouldn't be a disc jockey.
couldn't have had a better life than to have worked with all of you and to have spent my career at the Country Music the Association. The tribute to people who died this year. Radio, God bless you all. Fans, listeners, God bless you all for making this a part of our life. Against just 
contemporary worship, putting it up on the walls, but using hymnals with tried and true music that is singable so that the music is written so we can kind of find our parts, so it's written in a range we can handle, and everybody is singing from the same song sheet, and you don't have to listen to contemporary Christian radio stations in order to know what to sing on Sunday morning. I'm not going to take this as that opportunity to do this. Instead, I'll simply share with you a line that caught my attention. More churches are trying to encourage a generational worship experience. Hmm. Now, this person offers using hymnals as a great start to unifying a multi-generational congregation. So why do I bring this up? To go on another screed against dividing the congregation? No, I'm not going to take this opportunity to say it was a really bad idea to divide the congregation based on musical preferences. Furthermore, it's a fool's errand. Why? Well, what's traditional? What's contemporary? Is, is singing a... I'm trying to, uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman, is that contemporary? Is singing Michael W. Smith, you'd say, well, no, that's kind of old school. So it's traditional. Well, no, that's like the hymns. So what is it then? Who's going to be writing and dividing all of these, these, these groups that we have to be broken into? I told you, I drove by a church. Three services Sunday morning. Traditional, the bridge, and contemporary. So what used to be contemporary is now the bridge between old folks and the whippersnappers. So that... So you're not even contemporary anymore. To the founders of the contemporary worship music who said, now we've got to sing this and nothing else, you're not even hip anymore. So back of the bus you go to the bridge. Pretty soon, traditionalists will all be dead, and then what used to be contemporary 10 years ago will move from being the bridge to being traditional. And then today's contemporary will become the bridge, and the new stuff, which hasn't even been written yet, will then become the contemporary. Why do I bring this up? Uh, If this fellow's observation about what's going on in churches is accurate, that more churches are trying to encourage a generational worship experience, might I suggest, if that is accurate, that we are seeing anachronistic arrogance, chronological snobbery playing itself out, that we think we don't have to think these things through. These old dead people, whatever. Well, I say whatever indeed. Whatever they said is probably smarter than what we think these days because they took more time and, frankly, they were more studied. And so to simply just toss away anything carefully, willy-nilly, like it has no big impact, there's no repercussions to this, I think this is another example. When we quickly just throw away traditions. Now, we're not Roman Catholic, I'm talking about traditions that are Bible-based, that people have put some thought into. We dare not just cast them aside as if they have no value. Furthermore, what I think this demonstrates is sometimes just doing that has repercussions that we never anticipated. Divided congregations, I would suggest to you that doing this, traditional, bridge, contemporary, it's going to keep kids' kids longer. And it's going to disappoint and sadden the traditionalists because they don't get to share that hard-won wisdom. You put them all together, everybody grows as they stand there with their hymnals wide open, singing great sound hymns of the faith. I'm not, but I'm not going to take this as an opportunity I'm to feeling, just pot shot. I would not do better. that no, until tomorrow. That. No. Go serve your king. Thank you. 
shout out to our gospel partners. It is your ongoing monthly support that allows us to do Wretched Radio every single day and provide the broadcast, the entire program, for free to anybody on iTunes, Android, or at our website. Thank you for being a gospel partner. If you enjoy or benefit from Wretched Radio, would you please consider joining those partners so that we can continue to preach the gospel? Simply visit wretched.org. Once again, it's from Wretched. You can find it on YouTube, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D, and also on wretched.org, like I said. W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D-O-R-G, wretched.org. Hey, it's me, Melissa Cantrell, here on Truth Be Told Radio. And it's going to do for you is before the throne of God here on Truth Be Told Radio.
Does Earth-like mean life? This is Ken Ham, head of the ministry that built a full-size ark near Cincinnati. Whenever a new planet is discovered orbiting a distant star, there's a great deal of excitement. Yes, the variety in God's creation is incredible. But if the new planet is thought to be Earth-like, researchers in the media quickly declare it might hold life. Now why is this? Well, in an evolutionary view, Earth can't be special. In the supposed billions of years since the universe began, life simply must have evolved somewhere else too. So any planet that's even slightly like Earth, or perhaps has water, becomes a primary candidate for evolution to occur on that planet too. But when we start with God's word, we know it was only Earth that was formed to be inhabited. Want to know more about evolution and the search for extraterrestrial life? Go to our website at AnswersRadio.com for more faith-affirming answers. That's AnswersRadio.com. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change Forever you reign, you remain the same You will never change, you will never change Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change I was thinking just the other day How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are like you in existence, you are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance, you sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man, according to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan, I've changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us, all that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust, shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was As long ago as that was You have not changed, Lord As long ago, as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the same, immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. 
about my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies. Still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be. Surely it's because of the cross. When Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust He died. So even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished that cannot change. And with this knowledge, I am free. Forever this grace it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was. Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the same. Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change Forever you reign, you remain the same You will never change, you will never change Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change Hello, Shyman with Immutable Your name is S-H-A-I-L-I-N-E and find him on mattmood.com, mattmood.com, that's his record label. And here's also Shiloh with one day here on Tributory. Yeah. Man, it's crazy how time flies. My mind tries to sit still, thinking how does one define wise? Feels like yesterday I was a newcomer, fresh in the game, ready to make the truth thunder. But as the beat plays, they lose wonder. After a few summers, the band's ready for a new drummer. Doesn't matter if you're not ready yet. Yesterday I was a cadet, now they call me a vet. But it's part of common sense that the artist time will end. To the young, this topic can be hard to comprehend. They don't come close to understanding how you can go from most demanded to abandoned in the ocean stranded. Surrounded by the waves of your weariness, some things you only learn from age and experience. And it's plain to me that all the famous men you see, the time is coming when they will be a faded memory. Cause one day you hot, the next day you not. One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah. What in the world was your mind thinking? You couldn't see the sand of time sinking Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah Better plan for the future, kid Time catches up to everyone, no matter who yeah. it is Whatever happened to so-and-so, that's what they wanna know Eventually we learn that they all come and go Today's rising star, tomorrow dies with scars Today they all struck, tomorrow you washed up I remember watching Jordan's Hall of Fame speech Thinking this is what it's like to watch the lame reach and gasp But he tries to grasp what lies in the past Never to return what lies in the past Did he tell himself, was he lost or sober? Did he know it was all but over? The moment that AI crossed him over If I could be like, didn't include dying light Let's shine the light on the one they call Iron Mike Nowadays he's known for being all weird But back in 88, nobody was more feared at the peak of his powers, his opponents would retreat in moments he would eat and devour. Snuff with punches, but we must discuss this. Crushed it just enough to trust his toughness. 
pride brings us to justice. You puffed up with smugness, you gonna meet Buster Douglas. Amazing that, which blazed like petrol. The new praise that made the waves in the metro was praised for days, but just a phase like retro and fades like echoes. Echoes, echoes, echoes. Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah What in the world was your mind thinking? You couldn't see the sand of time sinking Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah Better plan for the future, kid Time catches up to everyone, no matter who it is What I'm speaking on is seriously welcomed by the few Even no experience to tell you that it's true On your radio station, this won't be found on the playlist Wisdom, the sound of the sages, resounding for ages The older I get, I notice it The whole of the script, hmm, it's found in the pages A holy writ, not the cash speech of the reverend But what a man sees under heaven Ecclesiastes 111 No matter who you are, death aims to stop you Whether banker, doctor, or Frank Sinatra Before your time is done, meet the timeless one The dying, death-defying, rising, shining sun King Jesus astounds and amazes He pounded the pavement to save those who were bound to their cages So let us praise the one who made the Everglades Our debt was paid, so in glory we'll never fade Never fade, never fade
Joe Fish with Shackles Phrasing here on Truth Be Told Radio. And now here's Praise Your Name on Truth Be Told Radio. All I want to do is praise your name from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. You are my God and all I want to do is praise your name.
Let me start this off with a hallelujah to Jesus, the sovereign ruler. This is not a rumor. Got the truth, so we about to school you. Check out a style maneuver. Shout it to you like the loudest roofers. Christ put us up from out the sewer. We don't have to doubt the future. Crafting our verses as we bask in his worship. You asking the purpose? Partly to fetch cash from the furnace. To Jesus' extravagant service. Immaculate purchase. He was smashing the serpent and we only scratching the surface. He proceeded was conceived in the womb of a virgin. The sun emerges in the manger while the angels serenade him. It's the birth of the Savior. The greater I am became a man, came as a lamb and would be executed to execute the plan to substitute the sand. In the place of the wicked on the cross he was lifted, but we considered him stricken and afflicted just like the prophets predicted. He came at the proper moment to stop his opponent and lay down his life to offer atonement. He's the most magnificent, the total antithesis of insufficient, the blessed, the glorious, splendid, transcendent, difficult to comprehend, independent of space and time, but presently present, suspending the heavens with speech. From coast to coast, he speaks peace to wind and seas, got heavenly hosts, easily posted on bended knees, controls the cosmos with the most authority, so we both in a Exalted King Christ Supreme. He's the sovereign thriller, the awesome healer, the law fulfiller, the solemn killer, the fraud revealer. No God is realer, yeah. When you're taking your time in the scripture, put your gate into prominent picture. See his light shining bright in the night and his fright in the might in the dominant mixture. See his name at all the renown, though. When he came for the loss that he found, though, he was tamed and floss all around but remained for the manger, the cross, or the clown. Yo, Satan had a shirt hold on him. Fight for the rope, but dope and then. All to the eye, to the S, to the E, to the N. That's what we hoping in. Risen on his spell check, the risen king can rinse clean. The most rebellious, I was hell bound, now I'm spellbound. Word is born. I'm a born servant to the word of life. Uh, call me a sellout. I was bought with a price. We gotta hope it won't fail us when we return to the dust. We will rise up just like the one who justified us. It's not wishful thinking when the truth's sinking. We are clinging to the promises that God bringing an everlasting kingdom. Nothing can compare to the worth of what we inherited. Nothing in heaven on earth can measure what Christ merited. The skies declare the affairs of his glorious care. The God who is there, who's aware, who delights in our prayer. His purposes are permanent and perfectly Proportionate, everything that orbits around his glory subordinate. He is the most excellent one, intrinsic, infinite son, preeminent the name, par excellence, prenom, phenomenon. He's beyond phenomenon, you see, the fiber of cosmology, the abba of astronomy. He's part of we, a pottery. It's shocking Jesus died for me, the father, he adopted me and constantly provides for me. Whether or not I got degrees, you gotta see his odyssey from sovereignty and lottery to poverty and robbery to resurrected bodily apocalyptic prophecy. He's stopping all the mockery and scholarly snobbery that don't. Acknowledge him properly. You ought to be on bended knee before the preeminent. It's awfully arrogant to reject him to your detriment. Study the development from Old and New Testament. You'll find a theme that's prevalent from age to age. It's relevant. Crisis on its center stage. Forget religious sentiments that center on man. But something less is what you're settling. He is the most excellent. Exercising benevolence and blessing a remnant with the benefits of his inheritance. Yeah. The sin of sinners that separated and segregated. That severed the relations between man and his maker. And placed Christ on his costly cross and compensated his life death and resurrection emancipated and gave us freedom from it all freedom from the effects of the fall freedom from adam and eve in the garden of eden and from the law so the saints stand and applaud his grace and glorious cause with hands raised praising his name singing glory to god <laughs> Next on Tripitore, you're going to have... 
song called Saved by Goldfish. I have a Bible that I read. I know the truth and I believe. I go to church with my friends. I have a joy that never ends. Not because of anything I've done. There's a reason. It's the only
John MacArthur. Join me for today's Portraits of Grace. Patience is an elusive attribute in our instant fast food culture. People get upset if they have to wait too long in line or get stuck behind a slow driver. But Scripture tells us our lives need to be marked by patience. The Greek word for patience means long-tempered. You could say a patient person doesn't have a short fuse or loses temper quickly. Three aspects characterize biblical patience. First, it never gives in to negative circumstances, no matter how difficult. Second, it copes with difficult people. It is patient with all men. And finally, patience waits on God, recognizing that he's in control of all events and has perfect timing. This is John MacArthur encouraging you to be patient as you live as portraits of grace. Thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. I'm Lucy Cantrell, and we're going to end the show with Nancy and Friends with the Rehabilitation. Bye for now.